week, climate activists and frontline communities called off a sit-in at the Department of Energy after the Biden administration announced a pause on new liquid natural gas terminals. Activists say the announcement is a major victory. The pause is the most effective strategy to halt these facilities, they say, because it's legally bulletproof. Activists are now requesting a meeting with the White House and the Department of Energy to discuss how frontline communities can actively participate in the process moving forward. Join today's One Planet series after the news.
Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is Your Call's One Planet series. On Friday, the Biden administration announced a pause on new liquid natural gas terminals until the U.S. Department of Energy evaluate the project's impact on the climate crisis, the economy, and national security. Frontline communities have been fighting liquid natural gas for decades. In a statement, President Biden said, quote, we will heed the calls of young people and frontline communities who are using their voices to demand action from those with the power to act. Today, we have an evolving understanding of the market need for LNG, the long-term supply of LNG, and the perilous impacts of methane on our planet. We also must adequately guard against risks to the health of our communities, especially frontline communities in the U.S. who disproportionately shoulder the burden of pollution from new export facilities, end quote. According to the New York Times, this decision has the potential to delay the largest of the proposed export terminals known as CP2, one of 17 proposed liquid natural gas export terminals in the U.S. Environmentalists, And frontline activists celebrated the decision, saying it would stop the United States from plunging deeper into the climate crisis. The U.S. is now the biggest exporter of gas on Earth, and that volume could triple if the industry has its way, according to the Stop LNG campaign. They say there is no bigger climate bomb left on planet Earth. Because this fracked gas leaks methane and then turns to carbon when it's burned, LNG is as bad as coal for the climate, and once it's been shipped around the world, it's even worse. So what is the significance of this decision? And what does it mean for facilities already in operation? Could this lead to an an end to the expansion of even more liquid natural gas facilities? Joining us is Jamie Henn, founder and director of Fossil Free Media, a nonprofit communications lab that supports the movement to break free from fossil fuels. Hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for joining us again. It's great to be with you. Well, right after this announcement, activists called off a sit-in at the Department of Energy. So talk about how significant this is. Well, this is an extraordinarily significant decision, as you laid out well in your introduction. Um, these nearly 20 LNG export facilities that have just been delayed and probably stopped in their tracks because of this decision represented the equivalent of missions of 675 coal-fired power plants. As you said, that's one of the largest fossil fuel bombs left on the planet. And it's a huge step forward in getting this administration to finally begin to take on the fossil fuel industry and stop the expansion of this industry from wrecking our climate. And so, as you said, we've been planning quite a big campaign uh, up until this point, really pushing the administration to make this decision, including plans for a big sit-in at the Department of Energy. From the start, we were clear that we did not want to host this protest in the middle of February in Washington, D.C., but would much rather be getting to work back in our communities and around the country. And so with Friday's decision, we were able to call that protest off. There is still much more work to be done, um, but this is a decision that we should all be celebrating and shows really, I think, a big step forward in the strength of the climate movement and the evolution of this debate. Let's dig in and talk about what a pause actually means. You all issued a statement from Rochetta Ozane, who's going to be on the show in about 20 minutes. 
And she wrote, you may wonder, why is a pause considered a victory? Couldn't the administration simply reject these facilities outright? Well, here's the thing. There's no legal way for the administration to outright reject the facilities. If the Department of Energy attempted to do so, it would be swiftly overturned in the courts. So a pause is actually the most effective strategy to halt these facilities because it's legally bulletproof. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So this is a case where we really wanted to use the bureaucracy of the federal government to our advantage. Um, every new liquefied natural gas facility requires a couple of different permits. First, from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, which gives the industry a permit to build the plant. And then an additional permit from the Department of Energy to export that fuel outside of the United States. We were targeting the Department of Energy, which seemed like the most movable target to try and stop these facilities. The problem has been that the Department of Energy has just been rubber stamping these facilities for the last few years using the exact same outdated methodology that the Trump administration was using to actually judge the impact of these facilities on our climate, the communities where they're built, and the broader economy. Um, they, for instance, were not taking into account the methane leakage rates and the full life cycle emissions from LNG, which, as you said, show that it's even worse than coal in most cases. They aren't, they also weren't looking at the environmental justice impacts in the right ways, and they weren't looking at the economic impacts. Exporting gas outside of the U.S. actually raises prices for U.S. consumers. It's simple supply and demand. The more gas we ship overseas, the less that's available here for the limited use that we still need it for, um, and that would raise prices across the board. And so DOE has been using this outdated methodology for years to let these projects go forward. What this pause does is not only throw on the brakes for all of these facilities for moving forward, but it sets up this entire process where now DOE has to go back and use the best new information to actually judge whether or not these projects are in the public interest. We are confident that any proper look at that data will lead to the rejection of these facilities. There is simply no way that you can look at the data about the impact of LNG on our climate and determine that that is in the public interest, especially showing that because of that methane, this is even worse than coal. And so those arguments about LNG somehow offsetting coal use in China or somewhere else simply are not true. Um, the pause is also important because it sets this precedent, not only for LNG, but for all fossil fuel facilities. If LNG export facilities aren't in the public interest because they wreck the climate and hurt communities, then other fossil fuel projects aren't as well, and existing fossil fuel projects should be looked at through a closer lens. And so there's much more work to be done to really nail down this decision, make sure that DOE does use the right criteria to evaluate these projects. But this has really not only stopped these facilities from going forward, but given us a tool that we can use to go after other fossil fuel impacts around the sorry, fossil fuel projects around the country. Why do you think the Biden administration did this, given that so many projects have already been approved and given Biden's mixed climate policy? Well, I think that it's really thanks to the incredible organizing that's been going on around the country. Um, that starts with the amazing leadership from frontline communities who are have been fighting these fights for decades, and I'm so glad that you'll be talking with Rochetta later on. Um, it's also because of the strong national coalition that came together to really back those communities up. Um, our movement effectively lobbied up on Capitol Hill, um, organized major sign-on letters, organized climate scientists to speak out against these projects. And finally, what really changed over the last few months was seeing 
uh, young people get engaged. Um, the same people that helped lead the fight against the Willow Project online uh, made Stop LNG a trending topic across TikTok and Twitter, generating some 14 million views on videos about LNG projects um, and hundreds of thousands of petition signatures from people who watched those videos and were convinced that the administration needed to take action. Um, that elevated this fight from something that people in our community were talking about and in the industry to what the New York Times called Biden's biggest climate test going forward. Look, I think the administration did this for a number of different reasons. One, um, they realized that they haven't done enough when it comes to limiting fossil fuels. They've done a lot when it comes to building out clean energy and stimulating that part of the economy. But there's another part to the climate equation, which is keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And there they've been sorely lacking. And so I think people in the administration know that and they realize that they're under increasing pressure to take action. Second, the data really has changed for all the reasons that I just mentioned. They realized that there really isn't a justifiable case to keep using outdated information to approve these facilities. And finally, they understand that an election is coming up and that they need young people, progressives, and people who care about the climate on their side. Um, they lost a lot of that support with decisions around the Willow Project, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, and other decisions they've made on the fossil fuel side. Um, this is a step in the right direction. This shows that they've gotten that message, that they're beginning to take this industry on. Our job now is to keep pulling and pushing them in the right direction uh, and make sure that we're showing that this is good politics because people realize that big oil is not only gouging us at the pump and driving up our prices, they're wrecking the climate and the future for our kids and that we want to see a president who's willing to take that fight on. You tweeted that hundreds of groups, people across the Gulf, more than 60 members of Congress, 170 plus scientists, more than 400,000 Americans all supported this push. And this was a massive undertaking. And it looks like this kind of activism has received media attention here or there. But what are your thoughts about, can you just share more about what you all have been doing over the years for those who maybe have not followed activism around natural gas and the effort to stop it. Sure. Well, thanks for asking, because I think with rare exceptions like yourself, um, there's a lot of interest in electoral politics. You know, we all read about the ins and outs of what's happening in Congress, and there's a thousand articles a day on what's happening in the presidential election. But I think that the most interesting work in politics is actually what's happening in social movements. Um, you know, these are people that are thinking outside the box of just casting a vote and finding ways that we can influence our political decision makers and help our communities and the climate in this case by finding ways to apply pressure on the system through different tactics. What was so cool about this fight against LNG is that it used every tool in the toolbox. People were organizing at the local level, hosting community meetings, educating their neighbors about the dangers of LNG. We were putting out studies and reports about the ways that liquefied natural gas was driving up prices or wrecking our climate. There was actions in D.C. to make the case to political leaders, organizing members of Congress to get on sign-on letters. There was international organizing, as you said, to get Europeans to weigh in and say, look, We've got enough gas. We don't need you to keep justifying this export expansion because of us. 
And of course, there was the massive online campaign with young people taking to TikTok and making videos and lifting up the voices of those frontline leaders who'd been organizing on the ground. This is what it takes and this is what works, is really using every tool we can to try and affect change. It doesn't just have to happen like that at the national level. I think people who are organizing there in the Bay Area or in your local community, wherever you are, can use these same tactics and tools to try and drive things forward at the local level as well. Ultimately, that's what it's going to take to try and really take on the fossil fuel industry who, yeah, they have a lot of money, but you know, they're a little slow with these campaigns. They don't understand social media. Their messaging is out of date. Their ads are pretty cheesy and terrible. Uh, you know, this is a place where we can really fight back and make progress. And so I love the creativity that went into this campaign. And I think we're going to see a lot of it going forward. So speaking of these companies, before we dive in and talk about liquid natural gas and, and why it is so concerning, can you give us some of the big names, some of the big names, like, for example, Shell, I was just reading from Reuters, November 2nd, Shell reported uh, 6.2 billion in third quarter profits with strong trading of liquefied natural gas. The company announced share buybacks of 3.5 billion over the next three months. Again, this is from November. So can you tell us some of the big names that are involved in this? Sure. Well, people will recognize the major oil company names um, like Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP. Um, all of these companies have staked a good deal of their future for the industry on gas. Uh, and let's be clear, it's, it's methane, of course, not natural gas as the industry likes to brand it. Um, but they really see gas as their future, um, both because it plays in our electricity mix and because they know that the world is moving to electric vehicles um, quickly and that oil will no longer be as profitable. So this is really the biggest fight when it comes to reining in the expansion of fossil fuels. Then there are all of these other companies that have emerged that specifically work on natural gas um, or methane, as I should be saying, um, or LNG exports in particular. Um, so the company behind this project, CP2, um, which was the largest of the LNG facilities proposed and sort of at the front of the line, uh, that company was a company called Venture Global, which really wasn't even a traditional fossil fuel company. Uh, they were more of kind of set up by investment bankers and hedge fund types who saw a way to make massive profits by shipping our gas overseas to the highest bidder. That's something really important to understand. Um, these are not traditional energy companies that just exist to get fuel to your car or to your home. They are Wall Street style uh corporations that are set up to try and maximize profits. Um, there's been a lot of debate in this country about uh, inflation and what's driving up prices. Well, the fossil fuel industry will gladly brag to you that everything requires oil um, and that enter that driving rising cost of oil and gas is at the heart of what's been driving inflation across this country. And we're seeing the massive profits in the industry that prove it. And so I think there's something there that the public hasn't quite, we haven't fully latched onto in part because we're so bombarded by propaganda from this industry that really a lot of that inflationary pressure that we see at the grocery store to our energy bills is being driven by big oil because they want to drive forward big projects like LNG. So that's something that we as activists and informed citizens need to keep articulating. And something that I really hope we see President Biden and other politicians lay out, that a lot of the economic pain we felt in this country over the last few years is because of the way that big oil has been gouging us and driving up prices. Um, and the fact that they're wrecking the planet on top of that makes it even more of a reason to be really beginning to try and rein this industry in. And just to follow the money a bit more, writing for the Louisiana Illuminator, 
uh, Rosetta Ozane, who's going to join us soon, and Adele Schreiman back in July 2022, wrote that the six largest U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs, are some of the biggest fossil fuel financiers in the world, pouring $44 billion into the top fracked gas also called liquefied natural gas, import and export companies in the last six years alone. The worst among them, Morgan Stanley, is the world's largest banker of LNG companies. That includes in Louisiana, where the bank helped finance the proposed Plaquemines LNG facility, which, if built, would become one of the largest fracked gas terminals. So in addition to naming the names of the oil companies, we also have to talk about the banks that are funding all of this. That's exactly right. And you name the key ones that are. Um, that's why really over the last five to 10 years, I think that fossil fuel opposition to projects on the ground and this finance work, whether it's fossil fuel divestment or going after banks in particular, these strategies have really worked hand in hand. Um, there's great work going on if people go online to check out Stop the Money Pipeline, which is a coalition of groups working on finance or individual groups like Third Act and Stand Earth and others who've been going after the financing of fossil fuels. This is a key lever that we need to pull. Um, and we all have influence as customers of those banks or as people who have pensions and large pension funds that invest in those places. Um, it's a way that we can begin to tackle this problem from another angle, which just goes back to that same theory. This is a hugely powerful industry and a very complicated system. And so we need to be using every tool and every approach we can think of to begin to slow it down. I have to say, Jamie, whenever we do shows about this and Chase comes up, I think about the fact that one of our major new music venues where I think think the Warriors play there is the Chase. It's called the Chase Center here in San Francisco. That's right. Well, it seems like a great place to maybe drop a banner um, <laughs> in the future for folks who are interested. Um, but I think you raised that corporate sponsorship piece too. Look, we all have to be ready for a absolute onslaught of propaganda that's going to be triggered because of this decision. Um, let's make no mistake. There were hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars on the line with these LNG export facilities. Um, so we have poke the dragon directly in the eye on this one, and it is going to breathe as much fire as it can to come back at us. And so you're already seeing that with all of this disinformation. I think the Wall Street Journal published something like six different editorials in the 24 hours after the decision. Um, we're going to see a lot more of that coming out, um, both because of this decision and because it's an election year. And so I think getting smart about how we call that out and how we use that to our advantage to push back and really educate people about the ways that this industry is connected throughout our economy and the way that it's working against the interests of working people and all of us who have a stake in our climate future is going to be really important. And so I love to see people collaborating across finance, organizing, activism, and across movements to really help connect the dots between all of our different issues. Jamie Henn is founder and director of Fossil Free Media, a nonprofit communications lab that supports the movement to break free from fossil fuels. Climate activists just canceled a Department of Energy sit-in after the Biden administration announced a plan to pause LNG exports. So speaking of education, Jamie, can you tell us more about liquid natural gas? I mean, we've been hearing about natural gas for many, many years a lot of people might not know exactly what it is or what it takes to actually export it. Tell us why activists have spent so much time and energy on this issue. 
Sure. Well, if if you don't know the details or you feel confused, don't feel bad because that's exactly what the industry has spent billions of dollars trying to make sure. Um, so let's run through the basics really quick. Um, natural gas is actually made up of, uh, predominantly of methane. Um, methane is a powerful greenhouse gas that is anywhere between 30 to 70 times as potent as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, especially in the short term, which is key because the short term is what matters when it comes to us actually turning around the climate crisis. And so for years, people have been highlighting the fact that despite the industry's claim that natural gas is better for our climate because it's less carbon dioxide intensive than coal, it actually ends up being worse because of all those methane leaks along its production. This is especially true when you get to the stage of LNG or liquefied natural gas. Um, what happens is that we frack communities across the country to produce the gas. It then is shipped in pipelines, which can leak anywhere along the route to these massive refineries, most of which are located along our coasts and especially in the Gulf South and Texas and Louisiana. And at those refineries, a massive amount of energy is used to liquefy the gas by deep freezing it. Um, that not only releases a ton of chemicals uh, into the air, but also heats up the water and poisons the communities and in local environments around these facilities. That liquid is then shipped all around the world, sometimes all the way across to China or far East Asia on big ships that burn an incredible amount of fuel as they're shipping that gas, which of course could still be leaking the whole way along. And so when scientists have looked at this life cycle from the fracking where it starts to the facilities where it's then turned back into gas from liquid and burned, they've realized that the emissions from this actually make LNG far dirtier than coal. At the best, probably twice as dirty, but some estimates put that up to even 30 times as dirty as coal, especially if that methane is leaking out. And so this data is really important. Again, it, it feels technical. It feels hard to wrap our minds around. The industry just likes to say it's natural <laughs> and leave it at that. Um, but I think that that's the type of information that has been coming to light over the last few years and that activists have really latched onto for this campaign. And that thankfully, it seems like the Biden administration is taking a closer look at um, when it comes. I just put a final point in that in that piece, because if coal has been the great sin of Republicans, you know, always pushing it, Natural gas has been the sin of Democrats. Um, Democrats have often talked about gas as a bridge fuel or supported those initiatives um, and get a lot of money from the gas industry as well. Uh, we have seen far too many Democratic politicians who claim to be climate champions promoting natural gas in one way or another. This fight hopefully put an end to that. Um, it highlighted the climate impacts of this methane gas. It forced the administration to take a stand on it. And I think going forward, we're going to hopefully see more Democrats being held accountable around that policy because you cannot be a climate leader if you are still pushing methane, especially when we have so many cheaper, more reliable clean energy alternatives out there. What does this mean for current natural gas projects? That's an important point. Look, this decision was about these future facilities that are being proposed, and they are enormous and a huge carbon bomb, and so stopping those is really key. But it doesn't say something or anything specific about existing facilities, and those are still real fights. There are some facilities that are obviously up and operational, poisoning communities as we speak. Um, there are major refineries like the Chevron refinery right there in Richmond that have been polluting communities for years. 
And so what we need to do is take this same logic that the Department of Energy is using, saying we need to judge future projects on their impacts on climate and communities, and apply that to existing projects. We can do that as activists making the case in the public, but lawyers can do that as well. And I think you're going to see a lot of people looking and the potential for cases and also pushing the department to really take a closer look at these existing facilities, many of which require ongoing permits or, you know, things like that, that provide us hooks to begin to look at that more closely. Um, so the fight is still on. I, I, I don't want to, I just want to really emphasize how big this decision is because I think sometimes a pause can feel like maybe that isn't a big deal. This is a huge deal. At the same time, the fight goes on. There is still so much more work to be done. But I think all of us should feel a bit more confident that we now have some wind at our sails. The politics of this is beginning to shift, and it gives us the m- even more space to push as hard as we can. How have European countries reacted to this? The, That's a the, great the question. countries that rely on LNG. Right. And you'll see if you go on Fox News or a lot of other places now that one of the main arguments the industry is pushing is that somehow this hurts our European allies by stopping these new export facilities. That is not the case. Um, our current exports already fulfill Europe's energy needs. Um, they're far more than that, actually. At the same time, Europe's need for gas is declining. It went down 19% this year and Everybody, including the International Energy Agency and these sort of indisputable experts on the global energy markets, have said that European needs will continue to decline. That's why you saw over 60 European parliamentarians from across the continent send a letter to Biden late last week saying, don't use us as an excuse to keep expanding gas. We're thankful for the role that the U.S. played in helping with the short-term need that was caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But we in Europe are committed to moving to clean energy. We know that this is methane. We know it's bad for the climate. We're doing everything we can to reduce our demand for that gas. We need to be tackling this issue from both the supply and the demand side. Um, and we shouldn't be letting industry voices in Europe or here in the United States pretend as if this is somehow bad for our allies when our allies are very clearly saying uh, thank you, but no thanks when it comes to these new facilities. Well, to your point, I was reading a few of these Wall Street Journal op-eds and then listening to questions that you know networks like CNBC have been asking uh, people like Jennifer Granholm with the Biden administration. It, it seems like their ar- main argument is that I'm just reading right now from a Wall Street Journal op-ed. If the U.S. exports less LNG, quote, our adversaries will fill the supply gap. They're talking about China rapidly permitting new coal-fired power plants. The other main argument they say is that the administration just needs to support and quote all of the above strategy. It's the only path to ensure both energy security and economic growth. I mean, that sounds logical on its face, but it's completely nuts when you think about it. Um, you know, first, because we're in the middle of a climate crisis, and so we need to be doing everything we can to transition away from fossil fuels. But let's set that aside just for a minute, as big as it is, and just look at the kind of security argument of this. 10 years ago, the U.S. was barely exporting any natural gas. Um, now we're the world's largest exporter. Has the world become a safer place? Did that stop Russia from invading Ukraine? Of course not, because where oil goes, instability follows. We, we know this from the history of U.S. foreign policy, all the wars that we fought over oil and the way that the fossil fuels have destabilized various parts of the planet over and over and over again. The greatest thing that petro dictators like Putin want 
is to keep the world addicted to fossil fuels. That's the way they keep making money. They're not really worried about another dealer being on the block, you know, getting supply out there. They're worried about people going clean. You know, that's what would really be the real threat if Europe and our other allies around the world and, and all countries around the world make the transition to clean energy. That's the only way to begin to actually take away, uh, the, economics of this issue take away the money that's flowing to these different dictatorships around the world. Um, I'd also point out that, you know, the U.S. isn't always the most reliable supplier. We, we, our, our president, we can look at the last president to realize that and think about, do you want Trump really being able to guide global policy because of fossil fuels? Um, so I think there's a strong argument to be made that the only way to ensure international stability going forward is to move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And the greatest thing we can do for our allies is to aid them in that transition. What's the response been from oil and gas companies? Well, if you had any doubt that this was a big deal, just look at the statements that the American Petroleum Institute is coming putting out. Uh, they are livid <laughs> and uh, they are doing everything they can to push back on this, um, writing letters, you know, buying ads, all of that. So expect to see more propaganda on a uh, television station coming to you soon. Um, this is going to be a real fight. As I said before, you know, we've, we've poked the bear on this one and we're going to need to do everything we can at the local level and at the national level and in the context of this election to really push back on this industry. But hey, look, that's the fight we want to take on. We, we've known forever that this industry is standing in the way of progress. They like to claim that they're part of the climate solution when in fact they're the greatest barrier. And so these are the types of fights that we're going to have to have if we're going to see the progress that we need. Um, you know, we want to run run some blocks on the fossil fuel industry while we go out and get to work building a clean energy economy that's going to save our planet and create a lot of good jobs in the process. Jamie Han is founder and director of Fossil Free Media, a nonprofit communications lab that supports the movement to break free from fossil fuels. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And since Jamie brought up Trump, we should say that he has said he's going to approve new LNG projects on his first day back. And at his rallies, he's still saying, drill, baby, drill. Uh, according to Project 2025, a plan for the next Republican president, whoever that is, is going to completely dismantle U.S. climate policy. Coming up after a break, we'll continue talking about LNG and how it affects frontline communities. This is your Calls One Planet series. We'll be back after this.
This is Your Calls, One Planet series. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we'll continue our series on the incarceration of more than 125,000 Japanese Americans between 1942 and 1946 by marking Fred Korematsu Day. We hope you can join us for that. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email yourcall at kalw.org. Now we are going to talk about the impacts of natural gas facilities on frontline communities in places like Louisiana, where most of these facilities are located. Rochetta Ozane is founder of the Vessel Project of Louisiana, a mutual aid and environmental justice organization. She also serves as the Gulf Fossil Finance Coordinator with the Texas Campaign for the Environment Fund. That's a grassroots environmental research and education organization. Rochetta Ozane lives in southwest Louisiana in a town called Sulphur. There are more than 12 petrochemical facilities in her community. Three LNG facilities are operating in southwest Louisiana. She says her area is the new Cancer Alley. Hi, Rochetta. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. We also want to welcome John Beard back to the show. John is the founder and executive director of the Port Arthur Community Action Network, a community-based environmental justice nonprofit. After working in the oil industry for 38 years, John Beard turned to holding the industry accountable and became a community advocate in his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us again. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you back. Well, Rochetta, I want to start off with you. You and your community have been on the front lines of this fight. What was your reaction when you heard the decision from the Biden administration? Yes, we were very excited about this decision. As I've said several times so far, this was a monumental decision in the fight for climate justice. Um, You know, the fact that they're going to pause the the approval of these projects means that they're going to stop and really take a deeper look at how these projects are impacting um, our communities, people, the climate. And that is a very important step because we know if we would have just asked for them to stop it all together. These big oil and gas companies with all of their money could have just taken them to court and had that overturned. But the fact that they're going to take a deeper look and investigate if these projects are really in the public interest, which as the public, the answer is no, they are not in our best interest. Um, it really means a lot. And it was a monumental uh, decision made last week. John, what about you? What was your reaction when you heard the news? My reaction was that it, it, it was a good move. It's most appreciated by those of us in the Gulf South and on the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana. However, uh, we must continue to work. It's only the first step in a long journey. And it's a necessary step, but more steps have to be undertaken. We don't need to just simply pause, but we need to make sure that in this pause and looking at a public interest determination, that we put things in place in terms of policy that are going to give voice to communities such as mine and communities in Louisiana and Texas that are already overburdened by petrochemical pollution. And now you bring even more to our doorsteps. And as you said earlier, it's causing you know cancer and heart disease, respiratory illnesses and all of these things. So there has been consideration because last I checked, we are the public. So who better than us to be able to tell you that while others want to drill baby drill and continue to do more, 
we're suffering because of it. We're sacrificed and we refuse to be sacrificed any longer. John, can you elaborate on that? The last time you were on the show, you described what it's like to live around all of these facilities, just how massive they are. But can you talk about that again for those of us who just don't come into contact with these facilities? Sure. Well, I'm talking to you now from my home, which is within four blocks of the southernmost fence line of the largest refinery in the country, Motiva. And you also have Valero and Total, companies that have a record of violations of Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and others. Matter of fact, in Jefferson County, Texas, where Port Arthur and Beaumont are located, the two largest refineries in the country are 15 miles apart. And we've known since 2010 that we are indeed a designated and recognized cancer cluster by the U.S. EPA. And unfortunately, they told us that we have twice the state and national average for cancer, but actually it's higher than that. That's all they're going to be, they're being allowed to say. So living here is with the constant threat of odors, emissions, flarings, fires, you name it. You'll see it any other, any day in time. And we just completed a tour, uh, recently of a lot of the facilities here that I give a toxic tour, so to speak, for people to understand and see just the exposure that comes from being so close to such large petrochemical facilities. And those are just a few of them that I've just named right off. Mm. Rochetta, what would you add? Can you just talk about what it's like to live so close to these facilities? You've seen the effects firsthand on your children who suffer from skin conditions and asthma. I was just watching a talk you gave about your teenage son who actually had strokes. He has seizures. Yes, that is that is the reason I'm fighting. I have six children and a grandbaby and we live here. This is our home. This is where my children were born and raised, but I wasn't born and raised here. I'm from a small town in Mississippi called Ruville. I'm the oldest of uh, five children. Me and my siblings, we don't suffer with any type of asthma or respiratory conditions or any type of skin diseases or rashes or any of that. And we we were born and raised in the Mississippi Delta, lived there until um, almost our adult life. I came here to go to college in 2003. So for my children to be born and raised here and not to be uh, combated with all of these issues, two children with asthma, three children with eczema, my daughter having this rare outbreak on her skin called Giannotti Crosti syndrome, my sister now developing um non-Hodgkin's lymphoma since we've been living here, my nephew uh, getting cancer in his elbow. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at within my own family and seeing what has happened just since my family moved here and moved close to these industries. These industries promise economic growth and development and jobs and to make these communities better, but they have not. I've been here 20, almost 21 years and I've seen these this community go down. It has not grown. Um, and so that is just my personal experience. I'm not a scientist. I'm looking at my own children's health. And my son that you just mentioned, 17 years old, was just diagnosed with epilepsy last year, had never had a seizure in his life. But again, all of the things I've mentioned um, can be caused by long-term exposure to industrial pollution. And that's what we're enduring here. Mm, I'm so sorry, Rochetta, to hear that your family is dealing with so many health, really, crises. 
in in talks you gave, you also talk about the smell, the constant smell from these facilities. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Our air smells like rotten eggs. You know, I have a a five-year-old whose birthday is tomorrow. He's going to turn six. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we're in the car and we're driving and he used to say, who passed gas? Who passed (gasps) gas? Because he can smell the rotten eggs and everybody would laugh and be like, not me, not me. And now he knows, you know, that's just how it smells. Or he'll say, let the windows up. It's going to stink when we pass by here. So at five years old, he should not be recognizing that. He should be making jokes about passing gas and and not having to relate that to the smell of the air he has to breathe every day. Here on our coast, we lose a football field of wetlands every hour. Now, when you think about wetlands, you might think about the fact that there are natural storm surge protection. But also when we think about wetlands, we think about our wildlife and the fact that Louisiana is sportsman's paradise. My 17-year-old son and my 19-year-old son, they love to go fishing and crabbing and catch oysters and shrimp. I've posted videos before the show One of the reasons I was fighting against CP2 is because I love to make gumbo and crab stew with the crabs that my boys can go and catch right off the side of the road. They can't do that anymore because that crab is poison. We have a fish eating advisory here that advises us not to eat more than two pounds of fish and not to eat the fat from the crabs. That's the best part. If you live in Louisiana, you know how to eat crabs. So those are the type of things that people don't think about that government wasn't thinking about when they were approving these projects. Those type of impacts are not counted. John, you have sued to stop these projects. Can you talk more about the health impacts? And Rochetta has made points in past talks about how it should be the company's responsibility to pay for the long-term health care that these people need. I mean, what what is available to people who are affected by all of this, John? Not very much is available. Most of the people in my city of 57,000, 80% of them don't have health insurance. But my organization has been able to secure grants and funding that allow people to be able to go who don't have insurance and, you know, don't have a deductible, can't pay it, to uh, be able to still get some of that treatment that they need. But essentially, the very things we should have mentioned are the same things that we suffer from here, that people are sick. I've had family members also that have been sick, but it's more than just me and my family. It's us as a community that are sick with these high levels of, you know, I like to say that you can't run into anybody here that hasn't died of cancer or has known someone that's died of cancer or is taking cancer therapy. Even the city of Port Arthur's health department director, is a cancer survivor, as is her twin sister. And as she told me, she'd never made the link that it's quite possibly where she lives and the air she breathes that has caused this cancer. So, yes, we take these companies to task for, you know, coming in here because they're bringing more pollution with them. And the case that you're talking about was a prime example that uh, this third LNG that's coming into my area within less than five miles of my home is talking about you know, it's not trying to reduce pollution. We've shown a way that they can reduce their pollution profile by 40%, and they refuse to do it. So we took this to the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court, and we won a major decision unanimously. They're now appealing that decision, and we're mounting up for that fight. 
But not only do we have to fight them from bringing in more poison and pollution, we've got to, as you said, do something about what's already here. And we're taking steps and action against these major polluters to get them to stop, to cease and desist. Or if not, they should be shut down. Our lives are too precious. John, last year, just to let listeners know what we're talking about here, ProPublica reported that the risk of cancer caused by industrial activity in Port Arthur, Texas, is estimated to be as much as 190 times greater than is deemed acceptable by the EPA. That's right. You know, and also uh, that study, as well as others, has shown that we are in the 95th percentile of cities or communities in terms of air pollution. Only 5% of communities in the country are worse than we are. That says a lot. And we all have to breathe air. We can't hold our breath when there's a flaring or release. And the worst part about it is because a lot of people live in older homes that are not as airtight and whatever. What you may smell in the house that you might think somebody, as was said earlier, you know, passed gas or there's a gas leak in your house. And you check and you don't find anything. And then you open your door and go outside and it almost knocks you down and overwhelms you. But yet you don't know where it comes from. You call the police and fire department and they check, but they can't find anything. That's unacceptable. People should not have to live like that or every time these things happen, shelter in place. We should be able to breathe clean, fresh air. And we should not have to move because of it. Because these companies come and move in next door to us. They don't go to Beverly Hills They don't go to River Oaks in Houston or Highland Park in Dallas or Madison Avenue or any other affluent community. They come here because it is the path of least resistance and they can get away with what is basically murder. Mm. Well, Rochetta, that goes to the point that you make in so many of your talks that we have to talk about race when we're talking about these LNG projects, oil and gas projects. You say that they are constantly hit low income communities and communities of color the most. Can you talk more about that? Yes, these facilities are overwhelmingly cited in low-income Black, Indigenous, people of color communities. In the state of Louisiana, if you take a a map of of where old plantations were, and you put it directly over a map of where the petrochemical and energy facilities are now, you're going to see that those maps are almost identical. Um, and so what, what, why is that? What, what is causing that? If you've ever heard of the Descendants Project and talk with Joe and Joy Banner, who are doing amazing work in Wallace, Louisiana, fighting against a grain elevator, they are buying plantations because what's happening in the South and along the Gulf Coast is that industry is coming in and they're able to purchase massive amounts of land because only a few people own that land. And those people are wealthier white people who, whose families once owned plantations. And so one of our things that we're fighting to do is we're t- trying to take control of the land and purchase land. And our indigenous brothers and sisters are fighting for land back and land sovereignty because that is one of the ways that these industries are winning against us they have so much control over the land and another reason these facilities are cited in our communities is because of redlining and gerrymandering and i work with an organization the power coalition for equity and justice and we just won a major decision in getting another uh 
district here in Louisiana because we were fighting against the redlining here within this state. So there is so many ways that we're fighting against this systemic oppression, this, this systemic racism that we have to deal with here in the South. And environmental justice is just one of the things we're fighting for. Rochetta Ozain is founder of the Vessel Project of Louisiana, a mutual aid and environmental justice organization. She lives in southwest Louisiana in a small town called Sulphur. There are more than 12 petrochemical facilities in her community. Three LNG, liquid natural gas facilities, are operating in southwest Louisiana. She says her area is the new Cancer Alley. John Beard worked in the oil industry for 38 years. Then he turned to hold the industry accountable and became a community advocate in his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas. He's the founder of the Port Arthur Community Action Network, a community-based environmental justice nonprofit organization. John, what are your thoughts about the Biden administration's announcement and, and what it means for existing facilities? The Biden administration's announcement is, is a, a step in getting welcome relief from these projects. And I got to say, because there's been some misleading information here locally in Port Arthur, in our area, and otherwise that this is stopping all projects. No, it's not. It's about permitting and getting a clearer understanding or example of what the public interest determination is. They say that these projects are in the public interest. Well, what is that public? As I said earlier, we are the public. Where is our interest represented in these determinations? Because you're continuing to cite these LNG and other petrochemical infrastructure facilities in communities where we, people of brown and black and indigenous origin, live. And there has to be something wrong with that if those are the only places where you can cite it. And we suffer so much because of it. And once again, it stops the permitting process. It pauses that process because a lot of these are just proposed projects. None of them have turned a spade of dirt yet. They're only on the drawing board. And they have to go through pre-permitting and the permitting process. Well, before they get there, we're looking at or asking the administration to look at putting the necessary things in place so that communities on the Gulf Coast can be properly assessed as to how they're going to be impacted and their voices heard. Now, for communities like mine, for Melody and Freeport with Freeport LNG, for the two other LNGs in Corpus Christi with their leader that she's fighting and in Brownsville with Becca, these people aren't going to get any relief because of this. So the question becomes, where does the relief we seek come from for construction that's already begun? Will we go back and reanalyze this and call for a pause on those projects to determine whether or not they're in the public interest? Because much of those projects, the 17 that are paused, will probably not get built because there are so many already under construction. And we're already over capacity. Our European allies and partners are saying, hey, enough is enough. We, we're doing good. We don't need more gas. But just as you said about Trump and others, that we're drilling more and exporting more than we ever have. We've become the nation's leading exporter of oil and gas. Well, we can't be the leading exporter while talking about phasing down and phasing out fossil fuels to protect communities and to protect the lives and health of those communities as well as people worldwide. We have to actually match the talk to the walk. So this is a good first step, but there's more to be done. And there are more serious questions that have to be asked as to how this this is going this process is going to work so that it actually helps protect people. That's why they go through these steps and these procedures.
It has to actually work to represent and protect people in the Gulf South and in the communities thereof. John, just quickly, and we'd love to have you back to spend more time on this. Do you find that locals oppose a pause like this because of the potential job opportunities? Yes, there's some that are saying that, but I dare say that the people that are in opposition, the overwhelming majority of them don't live in these communities. Hmm. Uh, you can see it in Port Arthur early in the morning and late in the evening when these guys get off from work, that they go east, north, and, and west, but they don't stay in the city. They don't live in the city. And for all of this activity to go on with two LNGs that are being on the phases of construction, with the various chemical plants that are having shutdowns and outages and routine work, Port Arthur is some of the highest unemployment in the state. Now, how can that happen when they're constantly touting jobs, jobs, jobs? We don't work those jobs. When you look at the economic statistics, you don't see it in home and property values and in per capita income. From 27 to 30 percent of the people in Port Arthur, that 57,000. They are considered uh, below the poverty line. And of that 57,000, two-thirds of those people are economically disadvantaged. That's a family of four living on 35000 a year or less. The median income in Port Arthur is only 36000 hmm. So when you start look at those statistics and you look at what they say versus what they do, that is why we have to raise a question about it. We don't get the jobs and the opportunities, and it's not because we're not educated or that we don't have the skills and the training. So what is it? And then if our communities are having to suffer health effects because of overexposure to all of these toxins and pollutants from so many refineries and petrochem facilities, then it, then you have to question what's the purpose? Is it to kill us all off? Or is it to create jobs for other communities so that they can prosper while we suffer? Mm. Again, we refuse to be sacrificed. John Baird worked in the oil industry for 38 years and then turned to hold the industry accountable. He's founder of the Port Arthur Community Action Network there in Port Arthur, Texas. Rochetta Ozane is founder of the Vessel Project of Louisiana. She lives in Louisiana in a small town called Sulphur. There are more than 12 petrochemical facilities in her community. She says her area is the new cancer alley. John and Rochetta, thank you for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call.